Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We thought we'd bring in someone truly expert on that short-term area and its linkages to behavior, and particularly to corporate trust. He is Anthony Crescenzi of PIMCO, working with Jerome Schneider. How's Jerome Schneider's week been? I, I mean, you guys are in the short-term space. Are, are you guys just watching the long-duration guys lather up, or, or is a guy like Jerome Schneider well, had a relatively Jerome and I week? and anyone that invests in PIMCO, broadly invests in short-term instruments, is, is still finding value there because it's still yields yeah. to be had. Uh, Three-month LIBOR is still in the twos. It will go yeah. lower, but it's still higher than these longer-term interest rates. That's what an inversion is. And so there's some value there, especially if you think that the Federal Reserve will deliver a fewer interest rate cuts than the market is priced for. The market's thinking there's a 50-50 chance of a half-point cut in September, and the market is priced for a 1% policy rate by the end of 2020. Uh, that's down from the current level of two and a quarter. And so if you think that these these rates will, won't be realized, then there's still some value. Okay, well, what's the value now, a little bit away from the frenzy of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, to an emergency Fed cut? I mean, what's the so what of waiting for the meeting or actually just saying, okay, we're going to move this thing forward and come in but, and cut? Tom, but did you look at yesterday's retail sales report and the the figures in there within it, which were so robust and in indicating that the Fair. U.S. economy has reasonable momentum going into the third quarter? The way GDP is calculated, it's look it looks at the the average of one quarter's activity versus the average of another. And so, if activity ended a quarter strongly, and it did in the second quarter, June, that means it begins the third quarter at a level that's above the previous quarter's average. And so, it looks like growth will be reasonably good near where the Fed wants it, which is around 2% or so in the third quarter. That's not a reason to panic. Financial conditions, perhaps, if they were dire, um, yeah. they would it would be. But with the S&P 500 up in the low teens, the NASDAQ yeah. up in the high teens, is that a reason to put press the panic button, especially when policy-related well, issues they can't control are, are, are causing the nervousness? The panic button's setting plenty of cash into money markets, right? I mean, we saw uh, one of the biggest inflows in the week ended Wednesday. Uh, $18 billion of inflows, so the 10-year high. Uh, we're currently at that when it comes to money market funds. I want to switch gears a little bit. There was a, a white paper out of BlackRock basically arguing for helicopter money in the next downturn uh, that came out yesterday. And I want to talk about this because it sort of goes to the zeitgeist of today, which is this fear that the Federal Reserve is out of ammunition, which is what we're seeing in the yield curve, and that the next go around is going to have to be extreme and very different. Do you buy into the idea of some sort of helicopter Lisa, money um, policy? In fact, um, Mariner Eccles, uh, Eccles, uh, 1935, who's the Fed chief, uh, the, the Fed building today is, is named after Eccles, called the Eccles building. He talked about the Fed pushing on a string. 
one could say that the Fed is today and other central banks pushing on a string, and no matter what they do in terms of putting money in the system, it will not have impact. One could say that this this helicopter idea was attempted in 2009 in the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. What, how? Um, really? I don't well, know. But really, yeah, like, me, it's a different form. To, well, to it was one form. Perhaps it was the first salvo. Um, the, the U.S. deficit was about 10% of GDP. In that deficit, there was a spending uh, agreement to, uh, to distribute 50 million checks to Americans for about $250. We've forgotten about it because it's such a tiny amount of money. So where, where is that money today? Or in other words, where would that money go in the future if it were given? Did it go toward maybe a nice movie? Uh, dinner, clothing, who knows what. It's all gone. Well, uh, it didn't okay. get invested. But so how could it have any meaningful long-term impact if it's meaning if it simply goes toward consumption, letting people have some a little bit extra to spend? It's so you're not into term. helicopter money, I can tell. It, but, here, but, but, but here's my question. I mean, how important are these questions uh, in terms of where people's minds are they're right very now. important but they're moved they're, they're they're the wrong questions because the too too often and the president is doing this as well this the fingers appointed at the fed and should be at the fiscal authority not the monetary authority because they're the ones in control of of uh, the way growth is um, conducted or produced not the central right. bank they I, produce one thing money I want to go back to your wheelhouse which is the short-term paper market and the indications of trust in the old days it used to be the commercial paper market that's gone. What do you look at now as a measurement of trust, particularly in European banking and finance? What's the indicator you look at and what does it say? Well, one, one of PIMCO's high, invest, high conviction uh, investments is to invest in Euro, European bank capital. Not all banks, but many banks. Equity shares? It's and this is it's not too complicated to understand there's different levels of what's called the capital structure the equity investor is the one that gets hurt most because they're directly involved yeah, in the Deutsche investment Bank of a company rolled over about 20 but, minutes but ago. a senior bond holder is senior and the first in line uh, if something goes wrong the equity holder is last in line the the bank capital owners second in line one could say it's sliver above equity in the bank mm -hmm. capital structure but we like those securities and that's a statement in itself because we wouldn't go there we wouldn't invest in those okay, securities so we thought the system Tony, were in in dire do shape. we go into the weekend and into september frankly with the trust measures that you and jerome schneider look at intact is the system functioning in terms of liquidity no it's, and solvency? it's well yes it's intact but there is fragility the biggest worry of all is that the and it's not trade but that the u.s and china are entering a cold Start the starting. This this is the start of a new Cold War, that could have a longer uh, period of implication because the trade story is a short-term one, but the geopolitical tension, the the Thucydides trap, the named uh, uh, for the, are you, are you going all the Graham, Graham Allison Graham, idea. I was going to say you're going all Graham Allison. That <laughs> the rising power threatens an existing one and leads to war. And uh, you see Ray Dalio talking about this on a LinkedIn uh, video this week. Um, in 500 years, there've been 16 changes in leaders, hegemons as they're called. Twelve of those changes led to actual war. No one is calling for that, but it, a, it, we are traversing yeah. uh, away from um, cooperation and traversing towards... How do I get from short-term paper to the Greek wars? <laughs> well, I mean, but this is actually where we're at, right? This sort of existential question of whither growth ever again and wither the state of geopolitical, uh, is, geopolitical well, relations. State, but though. I do have to wonder, going forward, because it does feel like there has been a change this week, last yes. week, we have tipped a corner 
Is that an but, accurate but, characterization? Yes, but let me tell you what hasn't changed. Let's go back. Let's think Adam Smith in the 1700s, yeah, the wealth of nations. He, he talked about this. I heard him on your show on the radio. I was listening was, in on yeah, the walk-in. The ghost of Adam Smith. How is wealth created in a nation? It's by individuals, companies, all striving to fare better for themselves, for their companies. Has this passion ended okay. because of political uncertainty? No, we still will work, okay. wake up every day. We're here on the radio all trying to help others to make okay, money to, Tony, to fare better Tony, real quick here, 7 8 a.m. in the morning. I'm done with the esoteric. Are we going to revisit an inverted yield curve? Or was that a scare and we've come back to some normal? normalcy set at a lower rate the yield curve is not likely to be a lasting condition because the conditions that cause it are the the type that the central bank would generally respond to and cause it to disinvert anthony Cosenzi, and what's great about tony Cosenzi is there's a real palette of history and society across this discussion of finance you mentioned the chicago cubs fan from from chicago richard thaler the laureate on behavioral um, economics. Did you, Lisa? Did you ever do a course with Thaler? Did I you did ever not. like do a seminar, darken the door with him? No darkening the door. Yeah, he's like huge, and and of course Thaler talks to Pimco all the time. And you mentioned Tony that this crazy week we've seen old people, which you know Lisa doesn't understand <laughs> this conversation. Oh come on! Not at all. Just old people time. look at the screen and go, really? I mean, there's a lot of that going on, right? Yes, and it's this bias that we have to remove. And Richard Thaler, bias, by the way, he's... I feel like a fossil in many ways, when I look at the screen. Not just race, but inflation and growth and the relationship yeah. to interest rates and economies. Um, Richard Thaler uh, uh, is a Nobel laureate in behavioral economics, and PIMCO employs him. And we had uh, one of his former students, Enrique Mamendia, in attendance at one of our forums in May. And we discussed this idea of age having an impact on how people think about things, including inflation, and she even studied uh, the Federal Reserve and how different members of the Fed, because of their ages, might think differently about whether inflation will pick up. And that's important to investors because what the Fed thinks about the future for inflation affects when it decides to move on interest rates and how, by how much. So we're all stuck in our past. So, so me, I, 50 plus says, uh, I, well, I saw our CPI at 6% in eight, 1989, so is inflation could pick up wait, when wait, growth wait. picks up, but he it, it so hasn't. Well it's very kind. Newport Beach Sun. And three kids will at, do that. Thank, they'll preserve thank you, you or they'll but, take so it this, down. Let me tell this you. Ring, I, it's I, the I hair. It's the other way around. The, I don't know. I'm a Tony with hair like on Saturday Night Fever. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> that's what's causing It's a fabulous thing. But we, head of we hair. think differently about We think inflation will pick up because we observed it, we experienced it. But unfortunately, a baby boomer. Uh, like me, will ultimately come out of the equation. And in surveys, you'll see inflation expectations fall over time because at least the people like you and other younger individuals will be part of that survey more and more, and that their experiences will be biased by their low inflation experience. I, this is this is really tremendous. You guys both are, you know, you're you're younger Watch than yourself. we are. Therefore, therefore you are biased <laughs> towards not understanding uh, the current but environment. But you are smart. She does. <laughs> Abramowitz is done on Friday, right? I'm done. I'm leaving you alone. The fact is, the new, it's Listen. the new crop, Tom and, and Lisa, the new crop of PhDs are the ones that are going to have the future so-called Phillips curve models. The, the most exciting material will probably come out in the next decade because I'll have experienced things okay. that, that, that are 
that we haven't that are, those that are different. created these other theories. You know, I hear both sides of this. Number one, I hear people kind of are, are stuck in the past and are looking for inflation models that are different. And then I hear the other side of the, the equation, which is if you look at the trading desks on Wall Street, they're all under the age of 30 and they've never seen a cycle and they don't know how to operate. So which is it? Good point. So it's it's possible then with their bias toward inflation being low. Everyone's biased. Policymakers will come up with the, an idea that creates more inflation and they'll be yeah. blindsided. So there's the other side of that equation okay, too. I, Good point. I, I'm not big on like viewer questions and all that, but this one is absolutely brilliant. This is from Julius, and he's got it in Trump-like all caps. Ask Tony what savers are to do in new lower low-rate environment. All the blather we're doing, Thaler, all the rest of it, the fact that I'm ancient, forget about it. What do savers well, do? Well, we think what... To d deploy that financial capital, it's not, it's electronic, it's paper. Why not make it something physical? As you know, there is a bias toward investments, private equity, and real assets, including real estate. Owning businesses is also a good idea. That's so yes, stocks, it's difficult, totally. and we may all have market. too few in the amount of savings to to do all of that. So it is. It is a difficult situation, but it depends on one's age. And if Julius, you're young enough, don't bet against America. Warren Buffett would tell you that. Don't bet against capitalists. People worry about populists, but what about the capitalists? Isn't it the business owner, the individual, worthy of some attention? Because aren't they the true disruptors? That phone you're carrying and perhaps sent Tom the message on, do you think that that was made by a populist? Some don't capitalists decided to make it, and they're making a profit, and you could have made a profit investing in that individual who made those. I wonder if he's always as philosophical technology. or if this uh, era of negative yields uh, as, has yes, spurred him. Yes, toward things that I shouldn't be philosophical about. Is negative yields still counts Very quickly, else. we're going to run out of time, Mr. Crescenzi, but are negative yields here to stay, or do you still look at them as a one-off 2008 aberration. Negative interest rates destroy money, so it is unlikely they will be sustained over the long run. They also Full siphon disclosure. money from the private sector to the I government, agree. which is an inefficient use of money, so it's improbable that they'll last, and it's a bad idea, and it's something the Federal Reserve yeah. will likely to want to avoid. That's good. It's a perfect time. Tony Cassenzi, thank you so Tom, much. Lisa, thanks this so much. This has just been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. This is one of the quietest notes of the week, and it's from Citigroup. It's one, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs. Big deal. Dana Peterson uh, worked us up in the car going to work uh, this morning. She joins us now. Dana, it's a, it's a note of optimism. I mean, there's a consumption-driven optimism to the American economy. Does that ebb or does that sustain us into next year? Well, I think that, uh, you know, we're definitely seeing this theme of, of uh, domestic resilience driven by uh, households and government uh, and external weakness. And certainly when we saw the retail sales, with the exception of autos, we saw across the broad strength, uh, board strength, and even department stores, which have posted a negative uh, string of negative prints, were up. Dana, key question for me this month, this year, who leads, the consumer or businesses, when it comes to the cycle? Well, I think it's going to be, it's definitely going to be consumers. Because um, what we're seeing in the, is that the U.S. is participating in this global trade and manufacturing slump. But where it's still expressing resilience in other sectors, and that's being 
uh, certainly helped by the consumer as well as the massive amounts of fiscal stimulus that was uh, uh, implemented last year and then will be implemented yet again uh, right. for 2019. So what's your GDP call 12 months out? Just to frame the conversation, is Citigroup and Dana-Peterson in 2% plus or are you below 2%? Uh, we still have 2%, and that's because you have two different uh, drivers going on. On the one hand, the downward revisions from the, from the benchmark GDP release uh, place downward pressure on on growth for next year, uh, so we might see below 2%. But on the other hand, you have upward pressure from the bipartisan budget after 2019. So together, that's keeping you right around 2%. Dana, what will be the effect of the Fed cutting 50 basis points in September, as some people are hoping? Well, that's a great question. We asked our, our investors uh, who read our research, and they said it's probably just going to inflate asset prices. That's not really going to drive uh, additional consumption or even urge businesses to invest. And indeed, businesses are on the sidelines because they're concerned about the external environment. They're concerned. They're very uncertain with respect to the trade wars between U.S. and China. And in that uh, environment, uh, the Fed seems like it's, it's more willing to cut, clearly, uh, but Will it offset all the uh, weakness from abroad? Probably not. Yeah. Dana, I guess there's also a sort of angst over markets. Have we shifted? Has something materially uh, changed over the past few weeks when it comes to sentiment and the direction of markets, given the fact that businesses aren't spending as much in the wake of uncertainty, et cetera? I mean, have we entered a new regime, a new paradigm? Well, I think uh, <laughs> we've been we've been moving in that direction since the, earlier this year. We've seen that in the Fed speak. You know, the Fed uh, went from being pretty hawkish in December of last year to cautious data yeah. watching, and then shifting to an actual rate cut and signaling that there could be more. Okay, but this is really critical. What Lisa brought up is the arch theme of the week in the central bank. And it is, it, we've had a regime shift in bonds, inversion, disinversion, but clearly a lower set on yield. Has it been a Bullard-like regime shift or is it business as usual for a Phillips curve structured Fed? Well, I, I think there has been a regime shift uh, in terms of markets uh, viewing this uh, inversion of the yield curve psychologically, and I think it yeah. gives the Fed a little bit more ammunition to go ahead. This is critical, Lisa. I mean, I'm glad you brought this up because it really goes to the heart of the communication, the Fed speak we're going to get, is, is do they come over to Bill Bullard's important short paper of, I'm going to guess, three years ago, where they've got a shift to regime study versus a more theoretical construction. Yeah, and Dana, I do have to wonder also, we're talking about the Federal Reserve and their reaction function, but I do have to wonder uh, whether we're past the point of the U.S. and China coming to some agreement and, and making this all better, whether we've sort of passed that point at, the, at, at a time when businesses aren't investing and we've already gotten that sort of baked into the economy. Well, I, I don't know that we're past the point for any change, um, uh, meaning things can get better. Certainly, President Trump said that he's waiting for a phone call from President Xi, and the Chinese have been willing to uh, deal with the U.S. Uh, on a point-by-point basis, meaning China is not willing to go further than the U.S. is. So I think there is some time to uh, reverse on this course. Um, I mean, are we you know, headed for a regime where there's, there's going to be perpetually weak growth? Probably not. I mean, this is just part of the, what happens when you have a trade war. You know, it's global. And yeah. unless you have some change, it's going to be weak. 
Dana, we've been talking about the yield curve inversion, the gap between twos and tens uh, throughout the week. I'm wondering, do you think that is an indicator of recession in the next six to 12 months in the United States? Well, I would suggest that you should never uh, place all your chips on one measure. Um, And we know that there's been different activity at both ends of the curve. At the shorter end, you do have market signaling that the Fed uh, policies are too tight, the Fed needs to cut. At the longer end, uh, some of that's related to the equity market. People are also nervous about second-half earnings, and so they're buying treasuries as a, a you know, search for, for quality, right? Um, so I would suggest that it's not as strong of an indication, and plus you have quantitative easing, which kind of dampens the back end of the yield curve as well. So I would look at a multitude of indicators, and right now the labor market's doing fine, um, and... The growth outlook is still healthy. We still will have another round of fiscal stimulus in the U.S. Um, I'm not sure if it all signals uh, right now, if anything signaling a recession in the U.S. We are seeing signals of a potential slowdown or even a recession globally, led by China and Germany, fueled by the trade wars. Dana, thank you so much. Dana Peterson with us, with Citigroup this morning on a, uh, a 2% economy, 2.0% economy, I believe is where she is. We are thrilled to bring you now for two sections, Michael Darda. He is at a profound impact on Bloomberg on the economy and Bloomberg surveillance, synthesizing economics into markets. No one on the street uses Bloomberg charts like Michael Darda's. Michael, what's the most important chart for you on the Bloomberg right now? What matters in the zillions of charts you construct? Thanks for having me on, Tom. You know, I'm watching these various measures of the of the yield curve, both here and overseas. And, you know, one thing that's really jumped out in the last week, I know, you know, a lot of journalists have been focusing on the very brief inversion in the 10-year to two-year spread uh, this week. But we've had other measures of the yield curve that certainly have some prominence in the academic literature, like the tenure to the T-bill rate that have been inverted since May. Uh, And we're even, you know, we're seeing that inversion intensify. And I think one reason for that was this hot CPI inflation report, which sounds pretty counterintuitive. If inflation comes in above expectations, why the heck would investors, you know, want to buy bonds and invert the yield curve? Well, uh, if that hot inflation report creates a more of a reluctance for the Fed to, to move in a, in a gingerly fashion, it could actually increase risks of a downturn. And I think that's you know part of what happened this week, even yeah. though it, it didn't get a lot of attention. So, Mike, here's the thing. I'm trying to square the sort of uh, concern about recession that we saw pervasive throughout the week with the retail sales that we saw, which were really good. And the fact that we saw retailers like Walmart post really good returns and results. How do you square those two realities? Yeah, that's a great question. So there, there's, I think, been a lot of confusion in looking at some of these long leading indicators, like the yield curve is a, is a very long leading indicator with quite a bit of variation historically. Typically, an inversion will occur anywhere between 7 to 21 months before a recession. So if we were just starting to see incipient inversions back in May and June, it would likely be way too early to, to see the coincident indicators, meaning retail sales, yeah. production, jobs, incomes. Those are all coincident. They tell us how the economy did last month but not necessarily how it will do a year from now. And all that data looks really strong. And that's one reason that historically when the curve inverts, 
the the narrative about it being different this time is right. actually quite compelling because it looks different if you're looking just right. at the coincident data, which is still healthy. Mike, Michael, you lead your note with a demand side analysis of what the Fed will do, cut rates, help demand, et cetera, et cetera. How do you take the idea of central bank efficacy at the zero bound or even at the negative interest rate bound? Can, can, we, have a, can we have a trust in the outcomes that are traditional? Well, Tom, I think it's a question of <clears throat> if the central banks are, are behind the curve or not. So, you know, these falling interest rate levels are, are one sign of central banks being less effective in the sense that you have growth momentum slowing. And with that weaker momentum, the whole structure of equilibrium interest rates comes down. And, and so, you know, you could see a situation, you know, with the Fed, I think we're already seeing it where even though they've started to cut rates and they're expected to cut rates in the future, it may not revive growth because they're simply yeah. behind the curve. So we, we need the central banks to get ahead of the curve. What I'd be looking for is the bonds to sell off. I mean, I think if you continue to see the long bond yield making new lows, I mean, that is not yeah. a healthy sign for the business cycle. That's well, not what you would see <clears throat> if growth and inflation expectations right. for the future were reviving in a sufficient no. fashion. We're going to come back, but Michael, we got to talk about the major, major recession indicator, which is a line out the door at, at, at Backdoor Donuts in Oak Bluffs and Martha's Vineyard. I mean, what are you seeing on the vineyard this year? I mean, you're a regular girl. Everybody knows you spend like six months out there every year. I mean, at the Artcliffe Diner at Backdoor Donuts, what do you indicate? I, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the restaurants are full and, and things are always pretty chipper out here, Tom, but uh, this may not be a good reflection of reality. Let's put it that way. <laughs> really? You think? <laughs> with us, Michael Darda of MCAM Partners. We're thrilled he could be with us today. Michael, to fold into the equity markets and the long-term ramifications for our listeners worldwide, James Bevan was just on with a tangible optimism about cash flow generation and the ability to buy here in the vicinity of here. Do you share that op optimism or do you link equity performance in into the angst of the bond market? Tom, I, I don't share that optimism at the moment simply because business cycle risks, meaning recession risks, I think have been amplified to the highest level that we've seen so far during this economic expansion. And that doesn't mean the equity market's going to go straight down, but I do think the risk of a recession and typically what accompanies it, a bear market, uh, is, is elevated here. If we think back to where we ended last year, where the market fell almost 20%, yet we didn't have these long leading indicators of recession flashing red at that point, my view was you want to be bullish there. Yeah. Now, with the equity market just off all-time highs and some real concerns coming out of credit markets, I would I would have a you know a much more cautious posture here. My, now, oh, well, go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, I just want to know: is is a trade deal something that could save this economic cycle? You know, it's it's certainly possible if it boosted optimism optimism enough to <clears throat> disinvert the yield curve and you know, sort of indirectly put the, the Fed into a more accommodative stance. We've been seeing just the opposite. Unfortunately, it seems like a deal is almost wishful thinking now. I mean, if we look at how the administration has has acted, um, it's not clear to me at all that there's even a desire for a deal, at least one that would 
you know, completely reverse the tariffs. I, I think the best we can hope for is sort of, you know, an environment where the trade war doesn't continue to escalate. Um, and, and that's probably not going to cut it in terms of a, a big turnaround in right. the outlook. So let's say that's the base case. When do we get recession in the U.S.? I would say, you know, we'd probably be looking at, you know, business cycle peaks sometime around next summer, you know, through the, through the winter. It's really you know, looking ahead a year, maybe a little bit longer. The key here will be to watch some of these intermediate and shorter term leading indicators for confirmation. And it's probably still too soon to expect to see much, but we can look at high yield spreads, for example. So far, no recession indicated by, you know, by credit spreads, but they do suggest that growth is slowing and Certainly, we could see more pressure there going into next year. And then for listeners, I would watch, if you want one, watch jobless claims. You know, claims on a year-over-year basis have been a nominally important recession indicator, only leading by a few months. But still, if you're rising 20% or more year-to-year on that four-week moving average, then, you know, go into the bunker because, you know, business cycle is probably coming down. Uh, Michael, one final question, and that is that there's an understanding of goods disinflation and deflation and the angst of the gloom crew that service sector inflation will begin to disinflate. Is that feasible that all the goods manufacturing trade challenge rolls right over and actually affects service sector uh, inflation? Tom, it depends on you know, on, on how the Fed manages. So if if overall aggregate demand growth is allowed to slump, then that's exactly what you'll see. If not, then prices will be going up in some sectors and down in others. One thing I think it's important to point out is many people look at the you know, almost one and a half percent ten-year yield, and they think this is being driven by central banks. But what's missed is the fact that year-over-year nominal GDP aggregate demand growth has slowed from a six percent year-to-year growth rate in yeah. Q2 of last year to four percent growth. That's two hundred basis points. So right. Is it any wonder that the ten-year yield has fallen almost as much? It isn't to me, but it yeah. seems like that's you know, a bit overlooked out there in and, the commentary. We leave Michael Darda with what made his acclaim, which is the dynamics of nominal GDP, top-line animal spirit, into what we see in bonds and equities. Michael Darda, thank you so much for this extensive conversation uh, on an important Friday. Kevin Carey has been one of the few people who's actually said, when everybody calm down and actually look at what's available, the programs and the desire to fix this train wreck. He is with Education Policy. He has written on this for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Most importantly, he's worked um, at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which is not only something liberals read, it's something conservatives read as well. He's out of Binghamton and Ohio State University. Kevin, we're honored to have you on the program. Uh, Let's get to the crisis part of it. Everybody lathers uh, hysterical about student debt. Is is, Is the hysteria warranted? Well, there's a couple different ways to talk about a crisis. Some people analogize the uh, student debt, uh, amount of student debt, which has grown and grown and grown to the 2008 housing crisis. That's a bad analogy. It's not the same thing. There's not a 
there's not a frothy securitization of student loans out there. People aren't speculating on other people's loans. Um, I think it is an enormous problem for a lot of people. And I think uh, if you step way back and say over the last 30 or 40 years, we essentially decided to convert our higher education system to a, a, a in many ways, predominantly debt financed or substantially debt financed system. Um, I think it's it's that has not worked out well and it's hurting a lot of people. Okay, so let's look at the finance first. In the quickest solution, of course, this comes up in the Keene household as any other household, is the quickest solution to get over this 10-year or 15-year payback and extend it out over a lifetime of employment, I'm going to guess 30 or 40 years? Well, I mean, you can extend a loan out to 30 years, um, but really there's no reason to do that because um, we have a system of um, income-based repayment and loan forgiveness now that the, uh, the federal government runs. So you can, um, at, at most, uh, make your uh, monthly payments a fixed percentage of your disposable income, and then any um, uh, remaining debt is forgiven after 20 years, or if you're in a public service job, 10 years, which is actually a, a really good deal, although we're having a lot of problems now with the uh, initial implementation of that program. Exactly. I mean, I mean yeah. the, the, my point here is people like you and others are making all these well-meaning efforts to write this program, and I would suggest families aren't aware of all these efforts. Am I right or wrong on that? I, I don't think people realize that we have a, a income-based repayment and lo- loan forgiveness program. I mean, then, and we've had it since 2007. The reason they don't realize it okay. is because the, How, Why don't we know this? Um, the programs are too complicated. There are too many options for repaying your loans. Every, Congress never takes away old options for repaying loans. They just keep adding new ones. So we're at the point now where if you try to figure it out, it's like looking at a huge spreadsheet. There are yeah. Uh, dozens of possible combinations. Um, the loan servicing companies, these are private companies that the U.S. Department of Education contracts with to help people make these decisions. Um, they often don't do a good job. Um, they're paid on a per capita basis uh, for servicing these loans, which means the more complicated your loan and the more advice you need, uh, the less money you make for them. Um, exactly. So they're the not. The system is not incentivized to sit the kid down. He's 24 years old. He's got a big fat loan he's got to pay off, and they don't make it simple. They're not incentivized to make it simple, right? No, they're not at all. I mean, in some ways, they're incentivized to just push people into certain kinds of repayment that uh, actually make you ineligible for loan forgiveness in the, in the long term. Absolutely bizarre. What's the politics of this? Is it Democrat against Republican, Republican against Democrat, or is everybody just appalled by what we've worked what what we've worked our way into? I mean, I don't think there's a member of Congress that doesn't have a lot of constituents who are super worried about this. So in that sense, I think it is a, a, a bipartisan issue. On the the specific issue of loan forgiveness, I think that is pretty partisan. I mean, we have these um, enormous policy proposals from some of the Democrats running for president, including Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, to have essentially mass debt forgiveness for the loans that are out there uh, combined with a, a kind of a free college plan. Um, Republicans uh, have proposed to eliminate public service loan forgiveness. Um, right. uh, that is, uh, hasn't gone anywhere and, and won't as long as the Democrats control the House. Uh, but I think on the forgiveness question, it is a partisan issue. Which country does this right? I mean, is there a Kevin Carey, if you're just joining us, so it's Kevin Carey with Education Policy. Which, which country 
gets the Kevin Carey Prize for common sense in educating our, our, our kids? Well, I mean, you know, people often point to Australia and New Zealand as having um, uh, income-based uh, loan repayment programs that work. Um, but what's important to know is that that's accompanied by um, a pretty low-cost system to start with. <clears throat> you know, so we, we have a very high-cost oh, really? higher education system. Um, uh, that we have an unusual uh, number of students going to private nonprofit and private for-profit colleges where in a lot of uh, countries it's basically just the public university system um, that's out there in terms of public universities. We're at the prime time of writing checks on this. Is there any outrage that 40,000 has become 60,000 and that 60 is becoming 70,000? I mean, you know, it's it's a market, and uh, I, I know that. Look what it's done to us. Right. I mean, I think <clears throat> part of the dyna- dynamic here too is that you have institutions um, that I mean, every you know, every one of the 1.6 trillion dollars in outstanding loans went into the pocket of a college somewhere. Right. So so we talk about reforming the system to bring those numbers down. I'm not sure colleges uh, have an, an incentive to do that because that means they're going to get paid less. Um, yeah. When people default on loans, it's no skin off of the college. They get paid up front. They have no financial risk in this system yep. at all. Um, yeah. And um, I think they've been chasing dollars in status and in some cases um, looking to make money. Um, in a lot of, I mean, a lot of 40 percent of those loans are for graduate school. And I think that gets lost sometimes when we talk about loan burdens and opportunity, but uh, right. disproportionately, this money is being taken out to go to graduate school. That's where a lot of growth is in the market, and that's where, frankly, a lot of the profits are. The profits are there. The growth is there. Discuss for us what comes up constantly, which is, and particularly for critics of America's effort here, which is kids through loans taking degrees that have a history of not implying employment, having degrees that do not apply the ability to repay back those loans. Is that a valid criticism? I, absolutely. You know, there's a there's remarkably little regulation of our higher education system. There's a baseline assumption that the market will work um, and that people won't borrow too much money in order to get a degree. Um, but that's simply, I mean, if you look at the fact that we have a million students defaulting on their loans every year, that's obviously not true. It's actually a very complicated market. It, market, it needs to be regulated. Um, you can't just, it's not like going out to buy a cup of coffee. It's a very complicated thing to, to uh, yeah. purchase. Now, the Obama administration tried to fix this by essentially making a regulation based on exactly what you said. They would look at every program and every uh, for-profit college um, and say, and some in some nonprofit colleges, um, look at how much money students were borrowing, look at how much money they were earning, um, and if the ratio was way off, if people were borrowing a lot of money for degrees that right. produced very little earnings, they would say, <clears throat> you're out. You're out of the program. We're not going to f- support that financially. Where'd that um, go? Uh, the Trump administration is in the process of dismantling those regulations. So, you know, Kev, just you know, to give you an anecdote here, uh, the middle child calls up and says, I want to go to graduate school. I'm like, great, pharmacy. I think it looks great. She said, no, something more stable, screenwriting. I, I mean, you know, that's, I mean, Kevin, that's the heart of the matter, isn't it? Well, and the thing is, you can invent a master's degree in anything. Um, people, I mean, there's, uh, if you're a accredited college, you can just say master's degree in screenwriting, $50,000. <clears> And yeah. uh, really? people can go off and borrow. They, sure, there's no, there's no one that will tell you not to do that. There's, you really? Don't have to have <laughs> approval. 
for that. Um, I'm sure there are master's degrees in screenwriting. And the whole really? and the federal government, if it's a graduate degree, if it's an undergraduate degree, there are very yeah, uh, okay. caps on how much money you can Kevin, pay. we are out of time. We're going to have to have you back when someday they pay all those bills. Kevin Carey, education policy on our nation's debt. Major team surveillance shout out to a tumultuous week. We are produced some days of the week by Richard Truman. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.